From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Nothing is going to impair uh, the base's perception of Donald Trump. They're there, they're with him, they're going to vote for him. But in the in the New Hampshire primary, there are a lot of people who are looking for somebody other than Trump that have ours by their name. That's Margaret Hoover. She's a political journalist and the host of Firing Line, the weekly talk show started by the conservative icon William F. Buckley in 1966. The PBS show is in its sixth season and also available as a podcast. Hoover previously served in the White House during President George W. Bush's administration. She joins me to discuss whether any of the GOP presidential primary candidates can effectively challenge Donald Trump for the nomination, what to expect from the upcoming debates, and the legacy of her great-grandfather, the 31st U.S. President, Herbert Hoover. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes from the new social media platform Threads from M. Pius, who asks, is the Georgia case more important than the federal cases due to the fact a POTUS can't pardon him, or is a state pardon still possible? So it's an interesting way of putting the question. I wouldn't say that the Georgia case, which has yet to be seen, but maybe it'll be soon, is more or less important than any other case. I think the general consensus is that the most serious charges that will be brought to bear against Donald Trump are contained in the most recent indictment relating to January 6th, because it goes to the heart of democracy, and the charges are quite serious. But any accusation of the violation of a statute that's a felony, whether state or federal, is a serious matter. Now, the interesting question here is that there are likely two possibilities of a presidential pardon on the federal side. If Joe Biden gets reelected, some people have suggested he should pardon Donald Trump. I think the likelihood of that is very, very low, vanishingly low, close to zero, if not zero. If Donald Trump becomes the president again, even after having been convicted of a federal crime, there is speculation that he will attempt to pardon himself. I actually think it's likely that he will seek to do that. The overwhelming consensus in the legal community is that one cannot pardon himself for the same reason that one can't be a judge in one's own case, but that would have to be litigated and it would take a long time. So that's on the federal side. It is true in the Georgia case that a president can't grant a pardon, but the governor can. And that governor right now is Brian Kemp, who is a Republican. And if he sees fit, if he thinks it's in his political interests, 
if you think justice requires it, even if Donald Trump is convicted in Georgia, that Republican governor can pardon Donald Trump. You didn't mention the other case, the fourth case, which is pending in Manhattan. If there's a conviction in that matter, Donald Trump can also not be pardoned by the president, but could, as in Georgia, be pardoned by the governor, that governor in my home state, Kathy Hochul. And I think the likelihood that she would pardon Donald Trump if there's a conviction is even lower than the likelihood of Biden doing the same. This question comes in an email from Clover. I've heard several knowledgeable folks say that Trump will never be put on the stand to defend himself because he's too likely to perjure himself. When a defendant doesn't speak in his own defense, is the jury ever provided with a reason for that choice? Are they left to speculate? Are they instructed not to speculate? Well, there are many reasons why Donald Trump would choose not to take the stand, in part because he's a terrible witness, in part not just because he might perjure himself, but also if you lie on the stand, that makes it more likely that you'll be convicted. So you ask a very important question. It is a bedrock principle of criminal justice in this country that in a criminal matter, no defendant can be compelled to testify. You have a right against self-incrimination, which is enshrined in the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. And beyond that, juries are commanded not to consider the issue of whether the defendant testified or didn't testify. They are not to speculate. They're not to consider it. Their burden of proof, as judges tell juries all the time, often repeatedly, the burden of proof belongs with the government. It has to meet its case. The defendant has no obligation to speak. The defendant's lawyer has no obligation to make an opening statement, a closing statement, cross-examine witnesses, do anything of any kind, but can choose to do so. By the way, in my experience, defendants seldom testify. It's usually the case that depending on what conduct the defendant has previously engaged in or otherwise engaged in, if the defendant takes a stand in his own defense, lots of that other information, some of which can be incriminating and prejudicial, would come in. And if he doesn't take the stand, it doesn't come in. So notwithstanding what you see on television, most of the time, defendants don't testify. So one of the most important principles in our system and in our trial practice is defendants don't have to speak and jurors are not allowed to consider the fact that they didn't speak. This question comes in a tweet from Dr. Kenjo, who asks, do judges have any guidelines about consuming news? How likely is it that Judge Chutkin has seen the truth social posts other than in filings by the prosecutor? Is Judge Cannon discouraged from reading about Trump cases in other venues? So there is no such guideline. There's no such rule. Jurors are repeatedly admonished by judges not to read news accounts, not to do any independent research, not to Google, not to go on the internet and read facts about the case that they are considering at the trial. Judges are free to read about anything that they want. Judges are allowed to know about facts and background issues relating to the defendant and are presumed to be able to put those things aside to make their decisions about matters in the case based on the law and the facts as applicable in their circuit. So, you know, individual judges may have particular practices and may choose not to read about cases. I think many of them do. In fact, I remember one time a judge called me up, literally called me up when I was U.S. attorney in SDNY to complain that the judge's name had not been included in the press release relating to a significant sentencing of a defendant whom we had prosecuted. So there are judges who follow the news, follow the news in the cases that they deal with, and also read the press releases issued by the prosecutor. This question comes in an email from Leslie, who asks, what's your reaction to the dismissal of Trump's defamation countersuit against E. Jean Carroll? Did you expect the judge to dismiss it? That judge, by the way, is Judge Lewis Kaplan, who's a very good judge in the Southern District of New York. So I did. I did expect the dismissal. Joyce Vance and I discussed on the Cafe Insider 
the lack of merit in this counterclaim. Now, what's the counterclaim? To go back for a moment and remind folks of the context, you will recall that among other things, E. Jean Carroll sued Donald Trump some time ago for defamation and for sexual abuse and rape. A jury deliberated and found Donald Trump liable for sexual abuse and defamation, but couldn't come to a consensus on whether or not the technical definition of rape in New York State was met. The day after the verdict, finding Donald Trump liable, E. Jean Carroll was on CNN and was asked a question about the fact that the jury did not find that there was a rape. And E. Jean Carroll said on television, oh, yes, he did. So Donald Trump and his lawyers filed a countersuit saying that her claim that Donald Trump had raped her was defamatory and untrue. And that's what the judge was considering in this matter. Now, given the jury's verdict, you might think there's a very, very surface appeal, if you don't know anything about the law and the facts, to the claim that that was defamatory. However, as Judge Kaplan points out, and this might get a little bit graphic, so I apologize, as the judge in the case pointed out, the narrow legal definition of rape in New York can be considered quite differently from the everyday understanding that people have of the term rape. So the judge points out in throwing out the lawsuit, quote, indeed, the jury's verdict in Carroll establishes, as against Trump, the fact that Mr. Trump raped her, albeit digitally, rather than with his penis. Thus, it establishes against him the substantial truth of Ms. Carroll's rape accusations, end quote. And the importance of that last sentence from Judge Kaplan is that truth is always and always has been an absolute defense to a defamation suit. I'll be right back with my conversation with Margaret Hoover. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, and delivering your product, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. But that's hard to do with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing. So to reduce costs and headaches, Smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a top-rated cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. 
See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com preet. netsuite.com preet. netsuite.com preet. Firing Line with Margaret Hoover on PBS engages viewers each Friday night on the leading political and societal issues of the day. Hoover recently returned from Iowa, where she's been covering the presidential primary. Margaret Hoover, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Preet. So why don't we talk some politics? Let's do it. There's an election coming up. Uh, is it in five minutes or is it in seven years? I can't really decide. What does oh. it feel like? What does it feel like to you? It feels like it feels like a long time away <laughs> to feel a lot of dread, like a slow motion car crash over five years, seven well, years. So why do you so why do you feel dread? I feel dread because I see few scenarios that are plausible in which I believe Donald Trump will not rightfully and um, lawfully obtain the Republican nomination. Wait, and, that was a double negative, I think. So yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I see very I few sure scenarios in which Donald Trump, that are, that are plausible or believable, in which he doesn't get Right. The Republican so he's nomination. getting the nomination. I think, he is, I think it is very, yeah. uh, a very strong possibility that Donald Trump um, will will get the Republican nomination to be president of the United States. And I think when um, anybody gets a major party nomination, there's a very good chance they could become um, the president. And uh, I think I'm, you know, I've, I'm very clear about how I think about um, the possibility of Donald Trump becoming the next president of the United States. I think it'd be very dangerous. We're, we're going to come to that. You you leaped ahead of me there. Let's talk yeah, about yeah, some, yeah, yeah. No, but other... I have I have a lot of I have a lot to say about the, well, the Republican about process. Is it correct that as you talk about Trump and the other Republicans, that you are Margaret Hoover, a card carrying Republican still? I'm still a Republican, man. I'm okay. still a Republican. So, yeah, talk so, about a that of, also. It's a whole whole set of ideas got to go somewhere. <laughs> whole set of ideas, yeah, exactly. And there's increasingly few Republicans that are elected to public office that I can identify with, but there are a few. Um, and and you, you put them all together and um, those ideas got to go somewhere. So let's talk about one of the steps in the process. You say there are a lot of steps. One step, at least for the Republicans, remains Iowa. You were just in Iowa. Yeah, I just spent 10 days in Iowa. What's cooking on the ground in Iowa? You know, it's always fascinating about being in, um, I, I love Iowa. I mean, Herbert Hoover, my great-grandfather, was born in Iowa. He was orphaned and and was actually raised in Oregon and, and then went to Stanford in the very first class at Stanford University. But his presidential library is in Iowa. His This birth cottage he was born in is in Iowa. His gravesite in is Iowa. His, and I spent a lot of time in, in eastern Iowa in particular. Now, eastern Iowa is the slightly less conservative part of the state. But I, I you know, I met with, Republican fundraiser types in Iowa. I met with former electeds in Iowa. I met with current electeds in Iowa. Trump is going strong in Iowa. Yeah. But there is a group of Republicans that really takes seriously the role that Iowa plays as the first caucus state and is thinks it's really important that the person who is nominated be somebody who can win nationally and has real concerns that Trump cannot 
win a general election. And so there's there's a group of, I would say, both Republican elites and Republican sort of slightly more moderates, and also, I would say, Republican grassroots types that would like to see another outcome, but doesn't know how, how that could come about. But I, I noticed real pause amongst some in Iowa. Amongst some. Um, so yeah. let's talk about some about some of those other possibilities. So there's a there's a new guy on the field named Vivek Ramaswamy, who seems to have come out of nowhere. He's obviously not a significant threat to Trump and probably not even to DeSantis, but he's out polling a lot of other famous people, including I think Nikki Haley and Mike Pence and others. You sat down with him. What do you what do you make of him? But more importantly, what do you make of his candidacy and why it's caught a little bit of fire, at least in some quarters of the Republican Party? It, it's caught fire in Iowa. I'll tell you, people yeah. are people like that he has an optimistic message. He has a lot of energy. He's been a successful entrepreneur. They like that he in Iowa, your approach and how you how you deal with your competitors on the field is really important. They they really care about collegiality. Think about it. Iowa is an agrarian society. They care about society. collegiality. I'm now forgetting. How did Trump do in Iowa? I he he was he remember he skipped that last debate in 2016. And so Cruz won Iowa. Oh right. But then he but that was in 2016 and then in 2020 of course he ran away with it. Trump is very very popular in it's Iowa. It's that collegiality aspect. But it's of yeah, Trump. it's an it's a great <laughs> yeah yeah, but it's an it's an agrarian he had time then to solidify the party. Yeah. And uh, and then once you once you on the party, the part, you know, the party supports you. Um, and the, but the Iowa, this is one thing that people miss about Iowa. I mean, because it is the, the state is built around agriculture and the history of the community and the politics is built around agriculture. You couldn't make enemies with your neighbor because you needed your enemy, your your neighbors during a long winter. Um, and, it, and people just really depend on each other. So Vivek has a an approach that I think works really well with Iowa. He He's not getting up there and trashing Trump. My view is Trump was actually a very good president, but he fell short of the level that I would want to see us go to. We didn't solve the border crisis. I've said I would use the U.S. military to secure the southern border. He draws distinctions very subtly, but then does make the point that I'm running against him. But he also has a more optimistic message for the country while still wrapping his arms around Trump policies. But he puts, um, they're sugarcoated. I mean, they're, they're, they're more optimistic and they're frankly just more attractive to the primary voters in, in Iowa. So, so what's interesting about what you say about Ramaswamy's attitude and approach is it's diametrically opposite from what Chris Christie is saying and doing. Like Chris Christie says, the only way to get the nomination is to run right through Donald Trump and disparage him in all the ways that are appropriate to disparage him, although he was one of the earliest, greatest supporters of Donald Trump back in 2015 and 2016. Do you, do you think that in the long term or the medium term, that Ramaswamy's sort of gentle glove on Trump is more likely to lead to success than Chris Christie's punch him in the face. Well, Christie's skipping Iowa altogether. So look, I think I think the thing we have to remember is there's no national poll here. There's 50 or 25 primaries. And each state's different. And Christie's approach could really work in New Hampshire. And frankly, New Hampshire, Trump is less popular than he is in Iowa. And Democrats can vote in the primary. And he also understands New Hampshire pretty well, has good, deep relationships there that he doesn't have in Iowa. Yeah. So 
I think there are two different approaches for two different states. But Chris isn't trying to win South Carolina or Iowa. That's for sure. How's DeSantis going to do in Iowa? His his fumbles are real. And they're they're not just perceived. They're they're real. So how are they real? How are they other well, than and you can talk about his personality? Notice. People notice, and that's making that giving Iowa voters and, and a lot of even the elites, the electeds, they, they notice the stumbles and they think, huh, well that's not good. Well, let's let's enumerate something. So so that that very homophobic anti-gay ad he put up mm-hmm. does that count as a fumble or something worse? In Iowa, that is not a fumble. The fumbles are losing a third of your staff, having to cut them, having to reorganize three times. Uh, They see that, especially in Iowa, because he had a pretty robust operation in Iowa, which is thinning out. Okay, well, then if he can't go the distance, maybe he's not our guy. Uh, It's it's really structural and and operational uh, that impacts the Iowa caucuses. Wait, so is the story, the narrative that the people are disappointed in DeSantis as a candidate, or they're disappointed in the way the campaign is being run, or they're losing optimism about his chances, and that's why they're bailing early? It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. And they notice that he's losing steam. They also saw him at the Lincoln dinner, which was on July 28th, 29th, a week and a half ago. And he, you know, Ramaswamy had this really positive sort of, he kind of stole the show because nobody expected him to do so well. Everybody loved Trump. Pence is sort of really nowhere. And DeSantis was fine, but he just didn't, you know, he's just not a heartthrob anymore. He's not sort of the new thing that could, that can win everybody over. Every, others are getting another look. And, and that's also the nature of Iowa. They expect to see everybody and see them a lot. And you have to go the distance and, and keep up a strong pace throughout the entire marathon. How about Nikki Haley? She seems to be somewhere in between in her approach to Trump, between Ramaswamy and Christie, is that fair? Well, look, I uh, no, I mean, I think I think Ramaswamy <laughs> and Nikki just each look. If you're looking, if you're looking at the critique of a of a of I'm the just, Republican I'm talking primary about the two Indian Americans who are in the Republican field, I think it, it's interesting. Everybody, they do have their own approach to threading the needle. I haven't really. I mean, Ramaswamy will say things like. I'm going to put out all of my tax returns. In fact, I already have. The last 20 years, you can go see where all of my assets are and what I'm invested in. And I believe that they should be in a private trust uh, because that's the appropriate thing for a president to do. Truly private, if, if you're a president. And that's what I would do if I'm president. Okay, so that's how Ramaswamy is drawing a, 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 yeah. a contrast with him and Trump. So Vivek, are you saying that Trump should have done that? Yes, I believe that Trump should have done that, and I'm going to do that. See, so he tries to create a positive contrast. Nikki hardly contrasts herself at all. It's like she's not even running against Trump. Have you heard her say anything about Trump? Um, Very, very rarely does she decide to pull a contrast uh, with a former president. Can I ask you about another guy? Yeah. Michael Pence, whose hanging was sought on January 6, 2021, Boy, you're talking about threading a needle. How small is that needle for him? Look, it's very it's very hard because, especially in a place like, I think his strategy is Iowa. Um, he's not going to pick up any votes in South Carolina. That's going to be split between Trump, Nikki, and Tim. And New Hampshire is not his place. So he has an Iowa strategy, and he frankly doesn't have, I mean, there's the, the way he's talking about Trump, which is 
He loves to draw a contrast between himself and the and former president on January sixth. But aside from well, that, he, he loves that, or he has policy. no choice. He kind of oh, has he no likes, choice. No, he loves he it. Does? If you've read it, if you read his book, if you really talk to him, he loves to say, you know, it was very clear to me what I needed to do on January sixth. I needed to defend the Constitution. He does. He really, really likes talking about that difference between himself and Donald Trump. And and does that distinction resonate with any Republican voters at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's, that's a, does that say part. more about the party than? Your party, that says, Margaret. That says a lot about the base of the Republican Party, my party. Yeah, I was going to get into this in a moment, but I guess, you know, implicit in this discussion is an acknowledgement that there are three indictments so far. Yeah. Maybe there'll be a fourth before this airs. We're taping this on Tuesday afternoon, August 8th. So maybe there'll be a fourth indictment, but it doesn't seem to matter one whit, does it? Well, actually, it makes them stronger. Yeah. It matters so, in the reverse. Yeah. Matters in the reverse. How, how do you feel about that as a, as a as a continuing member of the Republican Party? It's awful. I mean, it's awful. I mean, this is a, you know, the the program I host is a program that was initially hosted by William F. Buckley Jr., a man who is a cohering factor in the modern American conservative movement, which was uh, in its founding and <laughs> an amalgam of ideas um, of, of, you know, factions of people who thought deeply about you know, the economy and about foreign policy and about communism and the Cold War and ideas and matters of real consequence. And now it's a cult of personality. But there's still a veneer of ideas, I, I think, or, or they're suggesting. Yeah, look, there's even what some the ideas around ideas? Trumpism. What are the animating ideas of the Republican Party at this moment? Well, the party at this moment, the animating ideas are Trump and Trump and what he wants. I mean, you know, at the last Republican convention in 2020, there wasn't even a platform there. I mean, there was there's not <laughs> like really no a veneer of ideas. There was no it was whatever yeah. I say. And it's just become even sort of increasingly so. And I think the America first think tank, such as it is, I think there is a, a, a think tank that is an organization which is sort of a holding pattern for White House officials when they're out of office. And it includes people like, I believe Lighthizer is still there. Remember the USTR, the trade policy guy? They have white papers about, I think, trade and border policy and, and probably a, a non-interventionist foreign policy that includes handing the keys to Ukraine back to Vladimir Putin. I mean, that's kind of where the through line is for the base of the Republican Party and Donald Trump. And that's those aren't, of course, any ideas that I connect to, relate to, the the party I grew up in. Um, but pretty, there are a lot of people like me. <laughs> there are a lot of people like me in They're Iowa. They're not enough. There are a lot of people. Well, so I, so, I, so I push back on that. Look, I, yeah. I agree there aren't enough. There should be a lot more people like me. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, but I, I would like to think that um, the base of the Republican Party was a lot more animated around ideas than they are around an individual or a cult of personality. And that's not true. But what I also know is true is that we have a really sick system. Um, in the Republican Party, a winner-takes-all closed partisan primary to select, well, in many cases, all of our candidates, but certainly our, our presidential nominee, has led us to a position where we may renominate a you know, three times, four times indicted you know, potential criminal. Uh, he hasn't had his day in court, but well, he's, he's had some days in court. He yeah. hasn't done very well. So I, I think there's, look, there's a problem with Trump. There's a problem with Trumpism. There's a problem with the base of the party going along with a cult of personality. But you know what there also is? There's a system that needs desperately to be reformed. I mean, if you look at Alaska, which has opened up their primary process and gone to ranked choice voting, Lisa Murkowski, senior senator there, voted to convict Trump in his impeachment, didn't vote for Brett Kavanaugh. 
uh, is really very strongly a pro-choice Republican. People forget that there are two pro-choice women Republicans in the United States Senate. And she easily won her reelection. And there's no way she would have under a closed partisan primary system where the rest, like the way we choose the president um, or the nominee for the party. So I, I think there's a party that system doesn't necessarily represent the majority of its voters. I want to run through a couple of other candidates. Yeah. And then we'll talk more about your party. Tim Scott, would you say he's catching fire a little bit? <laughs> he's got more juice in Iowa than Mike Pence has. Yeah. And he he does look, he's got a he's a huge uh treasure trove of of support in his super PACs. Um they are very, very well funded. Yeah. Uh, and what is the Republican betting? The people who are betting on him, are they betting on him because he's he's a sunny campaigner, a little bit like Ramaswamy as you've described, or something else? Yeah, look, I, I, look. the reason he has so much in his super PAC is because of a couple of big donors, big billionaires who have decided to support him. But I think those people like him because he has an optimistic message. I don't know if it matters at all, but apparently Tim Scott's colleagues actually like him, unlike Ted Cruz. He's a nice guy. He's a great guy. Yeah, hard worker. In contrast to the standard bearer, who I don't think anybody says is a nice guy. Not a nice guy, not a hard worker. <laughs> Is there anyone else I'm, I'm I'm leaving off the list of the Republican hopefuls? Look, I I mean I think it bears mentioning always, right? That three of them are explicitly running in the mold of Chris Christie to try to go straight through Trump. They're calling him out. That's Will Hurd, Asa Hutchinson, oh, yeah. and Chris Christie. Okay, now Will Hurd may not make. I the like stage. Will Hurd. I like him too. I like him a lot. I don't think he has a snowball's chance, though, does he? He may not. Yeah, he may not. I mean, that's for for voters to decide. He thinks he's. He's got a New Hampshire strategy, right? Like you, you just we just can't see this as a national primary situation. Yeah. Look, you just I, guess, have to I guess at this stage, you know, I interviewed Pete Buttigieg, and obviously he didn't win the nomination, but belatedly he was declared the winner of Iowa, which is a big deal. And I don't think people saw that coming really this far in advance. So going back to DeSantis, and I think I know your answer, but I want to press you a little bit: Is DeSantis really sort of crashing and burning, or? Is this the typical the typical media cycle in which, you know, people are up and down, and the coverage of the race depends a little bit on there being different winners, depending on what month we're talking about, and will he rise again because the media narrative necessitates his rise so that we keep an interesting dialogue going in the press? I I don't think that DeSantis's rise or fall has been about a media narrative. Yeah. Um. I think his rise was because there was a thirst in the wake of 2022 for an alternate to Donald Trump. And it was so clear that Donald Trump had been a drag on the ticket in 2022. And DeSantis had had a remarkable electoral success in his reelection. That media narrative he fed, he fed that, he kept that going as long as he could. And then he took that to the legislature to pass a series of bills that he thought would help him in his race, um, the six-week ban on abortion and all the anti-LGBT uh, legislation, so on and so forth. That All of that tried to stretch out the popularity he was feeling in contrast to Trump. But I have met Ron DeSantis. I have interacted with a lot of people who have met him and seen him, and he is not a dynamic politician um, or personality. And you need more than anger. And I, especially if you're in Iowa, you know, so I think he came in strong because he had these really good polls on the wake of his reelection. But as people get to see you, and that's the thing about Iowa, they get to see you 20, 30 times. And then they finally make a decision maybe the day before they caucus. 
you know, so you have to go to the distance. It really is a marathon. And I think what they're doing is they're getting to see Ron DeSantis. And they see he's so good at angry. He's really good at red meat to the crowd. He's really good on picking on, you know, the LGBT folks and women's rights. But aside from anger and these sort of punitive measures that frankly have bit him in the in the back, especially with picking the fight with Disney a bunch, you know, like, you know, they get to know him and they're not so sure he's got all the other things. Frankly, they like positive. So let's talk about debates. Yeah. Are you putting money on the fact that Trump will blow off the debates and will he get away with that? And is it in his best interest to blow off the debates given how popular he is among the base? I mean, does he gain anything by going to a debate? I think he loses something, actually. Yeah. I, I do. I think he can I th- I think he can maybe miss afford to miss one. Uh, but after a while, like people, people won't respect you if you're not gonna show up and fight for them. And I, I suppose he could go do a big rally, um, but I yeah, think counter, also- counter-programming, right? Why not? Why not? He could do that. Um, I do think, so Chris Christie is persuaded that he understands Trump's psychology so well that he could, uh, he will bully, he will be successful at bullying and shaming him to the stage eventually. He thinks yeah, maybe he can get away that? with- I don't think I, I do. I, I, th- I, well, I think I, Trump I, is I, very actually, hard to debate. Uh, I, so, I mean, Chris Christie did his debate prep for Biden in 2020. So Christie has a pretty good sense of how he thinks at the table. And I I actually, you know, I've sat across from Chris. I've talked to him both, both on my show and off for the record. And I think he's got a pretty good sense of how to goad Trump into showing up eventually. Right. So there's two questions, goad him into showing up. And then when he shows up, is he going to lay a glove? Yeah. And and not lay a glove and not lay a glove as perceived by Margaret Hoover or Preet Bharara, but lay a glove as perceived by the enchanted base of Donald Trump. Nothing is going to impair uh, the base's perception of Donald Trump. They're there, they're with him, they're going to vote for him. But in the in the New Hampshire primary, there are a lot of people who are looking for somebody other than Trump that have ours by their name. I think there's a real chance that Christie, Christie's making headway in New Hampshire. Christie could lay a hand on Trump. And I think at that point, Preet, the thing that Republicans have to ask themselves is, okay, wait, here's somebody who really can make a dent in Trump's lead. Does the party want to continue to divide itself, you know, amongst 16 candidates or five candidates, seven candidates? Or do we want to give Trump the nomination through the plurality? Or do we want to rally around an alternative? So can I ask you to put a percentage figure on the likelihood that Trump gets the nomination? 75%. 75%. Right I think it's really strong. I think it's really likely right now. Yeah. So I want to talk about before we get to Biden and how he's doing. I hope I'm wrong, by the way. I'd love to be wrong. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. I, I think it's higher than 75%. And I don't think the people who view that as a disaster for America and democracy are really taking it seriously enough. There's a, a certain amount of I totally agree with you. Denial going on. Even even by me. Like I'm 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 happier, I'm happier sort of than I should be, given the prospect that you were um, handicapping. What that means is that we have to, we have to, I mean, we as Americans and Republicans, I don't, I don't know how Republicans can defeat him in the primary. I really don't know how to do it. What I am thinking about is the jurisdictions that will be very close on election day, because not only do we not have a national election, we have 50 state elections for electors. And I think people need to be thinking really carefully about the states that are closest and how to avoid turmoil in those states, because the second you have anything close to what Trump can say as a contested election or result, you give 
yeah. he and his base and his people space to cast doubt on the ultimate result of the election. And so that's, yeah. So, so I, so I have a lot of thoughts about how, what we can be doing to strengthen our democracy ahead of the election in order, in order to ensure that that doesn't happen. I'm going to ask you about those after we go through the third party prospects yeah. and Biden. So Biden gets the nomination, Trump gets the nomination. That's a fight that we can talk about and we can, you know, make predictions about. Now you have somebody running as a third party candidate. It could be Robert F. Kennedy Jr. It could be somebody else. How do you think that plays out? Could that make the difference? I mean, the conventional, the, yeah, yeah, I think the conventional wisdom is that that ends up helping reelect Trump. Uh, pe- people that just can't can't vote for Trump, can't vote for Biden, you know, it, it ends up favoring Trump. There was one poll in New Hampshire that suggested very recently, and it was sort of ahead of the no labels rollout. So I wonder who paid for the poll, and it suggested that a third party candidate would actually hurt Trump, not Biden. But that's an outlier. I haven't seen anything else like it. And, you know, every way you model it that I've seen suggests that it it would help Trump. Why is Biden so low in the polls? I think there's a lot of reasons. Uh, I think... I mean, I'm biased. You know, I I think he's doing a great job. I think he has real accomplishments. I think he has bipartisan achievements. Inflation is going down. We've uh, avoided so far a recession. Now experts are saying we may not have a recession at all. Why is he in a slump? You know, I think Biden's not energetically owning his successes in a way that people connect the dots and give him credit. Uh, and what I, more I, is he to, I do is think he that's a function of his age. Well, I don't know. Look, I worked for Bush, George W. Bush in the White House. Yeah. And George mission W. Accomplished. Bush. Mission accomplished. <laughs> I mean, right. But 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 actually, actually, where's the mission accomplished banner? That's what I want to know. Like, where is Joe Biden on the airplane landing on the aircraft carrier with the mission accomplished sign? OK, maybe yeah, mission wasn't well, accomplished, but you know Bush what George W. Bush could do? <laughs> right. You know what? He looked he looked foolish several days later when there was no plan to stabilize Iraq. Yeah. But what, why isn't, why isn't Joe Biden doing a victory lap every five minutes? He has I mean, a he success. Tweets, he's got a Twitter nah, account. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah, he, it's says, like, look, this is, he says, you know, I, I follow that guy on Twitter no, and threads. Is I'm, he on threads? I'm joking with you. I'm joking with you because that's know. outrageous. You and I both know what it takes when you have the bully pulpit to get on a plane and go to a rally and be like, all of you have, you know, jobs now because of, you know, because of because of the uh, industrial policy bill that we passed or the infrastructure funding bill that we passed or, um, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever policy success he wants to mark, uh, he he should be doing a lot more of on the road showing people that he's doing it. Yeah. Is it also partly? It's maybe, a permanent campaign. Yeah. Maybe, maybe substantially his age and people are just tired of somebody who's been on the scene for a long time. Now, I don't I think so. Why I that think doesn't you apply to tr- you, you don't think that's it. You think he's I just think not bragging he should be, enough. I think he's. I think yeah. I think he's just not out in front of people enough. <laughs> okay. Saying, "Look what we did for you," and and by the way, the person to do it is not his vice president. He's got to do it. He's the guy people voted for. They just have people have to be reminded we have short attention spans, and we turn on the news at night. And who's leading the news? You know, Trump in an indictment, not Joe Biden. And look what he did for us. So I, I actually just, I think. I think you got to use the bully pulpit, not your Twitter. You got to be on the front page of the local newspaper and you got to be leading the local news at night. And that's that's how you remind people what you're doing. I'll be right back with Margaret Hoover after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So I want to now get into the, the area that you mentioned a few minutes ago about how, sort of generally speaking, we can improve democracy and maybe more specifically, how your party can sort of resurrect itself. And, and you said in an interview recently, people like Chris Sununu, who, by the way, represents the more sane wing of the Republican Party right now, you mentioned him, and you say it is on people like him and Chris Christie and Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker, the folks who have stood up to the extremes, are they sane because they're moderate or are they in some independent way sane? Well, <laughs> Chris Sununu, I was criticizing Chris Sununu because he he basically had given a statement, I don't remember exactly what he said, that, that was incredibly supportive of Donald Trump in a way that was, um, you know, right. felt incredibly inauthentic. And you were saying it was a shame because, because he, he otherwise is in the more sane wing of the party. Yeah, I mean, he... he Sununu has been a successful governor. He, uh, you know, he, he represents a um, tradition in the party that... Look, I mean, he's he's hewed, I think, a, a little bit towards Trumpism um, while still representing some of the more traditional Republican ideas um, that I think, you know, most of us recognize from, I don't know, Rockefeller Republicans through uh, maybe the beginning of the Bush era, uh, George W. Bush era. Um, you know, they're, they're, the party really hasn't reconstituted itself since the Bush era. And and that's why I think, you know, Trump sort of walked in the front door and then turned it into a cult of personality. So what are people like? Larry Hogan yeah. and Chris Sununu is supposed to do. And by the way, Larry Hogan chose not to run for president. Yeah. By the way, we should mention Larry Hogan, former governor of Maryland. Larry Hogan's exactly the kind of person that can't, I mean, this is the problem. My criticism, aside from the criticism of Trump and the criticism of the party becoming a cult of personality around Trump, is also a criticism of a party that could never let the most popular Republican governor in America get the nomination for its own party. I mean, Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker and Phil Scott uh, Phil Scott is the Republican governor of Vermont that you know, maybe your listeners know or not. Charlie Baker, of course, was the Republican governor of Massachusetts for many years. Those are the three most popular governors in America three years ago. Like not not Republican governors in America, the three most popular governors in America. What do they have in common? They're all blue state Republican governors. Why are they popular? Because they've figured out how to work in a state where there are a really wide array of political opinions and they've been able to effectively legislate, get a lot of reforms through, make things better for the people in their state, handle COVID and the crisis in a way that um, garnered the confidence of, of, of people from every every sector in their state. Yeah, really, who was reelected with like, you know, the majority of women, majority of Hispanic voters, uh, 40%, 30% of African-American voters. Uh, the head of the NAACP, you know, endorsed him in his reelection. I mean, so, so there's a there's just a totally different way to be a Republican that can't get another look through a Republican primary process for president. Yeah. But as you point out, they're in a certain kind of state, Maryland, Massachusetts. If you're Liz Cheney, and you have some sanity about yourself, although remaining conservative ideologically, and in a way that William F. Buckley would probably enjoy and appreciate, you get kicked out of office. Yeah. So, so going back to how your party, the Republican Party, resuscitates itself, the opportunities for people to be sort of sane 
to keep using that word, and bipartisan, there are only a few states that are like that. If, if the nation is so polarized, and I know you have an idea about electoral reform, which I want to ask you about and, and hear about, but if the nation is so polarized that you have more and more counties that are guaranteed red and more and more counties that are guaranteed blue, the people from those red counties and vice versa don't have to do anything to appeal to the other side, right? Yeah, that's certainly part of the problem. But there are increasingly places, I mean, there are purple counties in every state. Even in Iowa, in the year where Governor Branstad had the highest margin in his reelection of any Republican governor ever, there were still, you know, counties that were straight, straight blue where he just, he couldn't, he couldn't get a look. So there are, and and those, you know, there's, look, I just, the process is what is making us more extreme, right? If you have closed partisan primaries. Right. So explain that. So your husband, uh, who's also terrific, John Avalon was on the show some time ago and he talked about the primary process. Explain explain why the current system in most of the country is not good and why a new system would be better. Every single state, and from Texas to New York, the people who are active in the primaries of a particular party end up representing, even within the context of the issues of those parties, a more extreme version of, of candidates and ideas for the party than the general election voters. Um, they're mobilized around one or two issues that are issues that they care so deeply about that they'll show up on a cold Tuesday in March when nobody else has a clue that there's a primary election and nominate a candidate that represents their check-the-box idea but is pretty unpalatable to a moderate majority of the rest of the voters who are just going about their everyday lives on that Tuesday in March. They're getting their kids to school. They're going to work. They're taking their parents to surgery. They're you know, doing all, all the things that regular people do when they don't think about a single issue every day when they wake up and then go to bed. And the extreme activists in the Republican Party, and this happens on the left too, are the ones who end up selecting the candidates that you have to choose from when it comes time for the general election. And they often don't reflect the tastes or the palate or the views of, of the majority of Republican voters. And that's that's the sick system that we have, um, certainly on the right. And I'll let you speak to what goes on in the Democratic Party. You certainly have your own version of it. No, I, I think I think nonpartisan primaries are a good thing. They certainly work very well, I think, in municipal government combined with or uh, or otherwise ranked choice voting. Yeah. Right? And the problem the is you had ranked choice yeah. voting in New York for a closed partisan primary, which is <laughs> right. not the reform we're looking for. Um, but I do think I think I think open par- primaries are, is one way to get more representative candidates on the ballot. What do you think about term limits in the federal system? I think it's fine. I think it's not going to solve it. And I also think it has to be paired with term limits to staff, because otherwise the institutional memory will be held by people who are unaccountable to voters. And so staff have to be limited as well. Any other reforms you would suggest? Look, I don't think the biggest one. I, th- I mean, the biggest one is, is is open primaries. You know, you can you can sort of these independent redistricting commissions that are truly independent to um, balance out the insane gerrymandering that's happened everywhere. I mean, that those are I think those are good too. Campaign finance reform is that ever going to see the light of day in the way that is really needed in this country? Here's what I think. I actually don't have a problem with the money in elections. I mean, I think it's crazy that we spend so much on elections. I don't think it's great. I like it to be transparent. And it's not transparent. I mean, you have all these independent social welfare C4 organizations that, you know, But you don't think Citizens United was a bad thing? 
Yeah, no. I I mean I look, I don't think it's I don't think it's been great, but the place My that listeners it has been. liking most, you a lot up until now. <laughs> I know, I know. Look, I don't look, I, I'm not saying it was good, but I'm saying it didn't the thing it was supposed to do was get money out of fine out of out of campaigns. And there's it didn't. It it fundamentally failed at that. And uh and there's there's, you know, money money is in campaigns and we have not figured a way to excise it unless we sort of go after a British system and just say everybody gets this and that's it, and we campaign for six weeks. Can I say something unpopular? Yeah. Or at least propose something unpopular. So we spent a lot of time talking about the system and ranked choice voting and term limits and closed primaries and open primaries and the press and all these other factors and things that we could improve or reform to get better results of people with integrity and who are not you know, out of the mainstream, whether on the right or on the left. At the end of the day, how much blame can we place on the voting public itself? Fair to say- Arguably, a good bit. Well, <laughs> isn't it the voting our fault? public? I mean, the the yeah. I mean, I look. The voting public did the right thing. They didn't reelect Donald Trump last time, um, and so we have to rely on the voting public to do the right thing this time and not reelect Donald Trump. I mean, I really think there is just a fundamental existential challenge to our democracy in the in the renomination, potential renomination, and potential reelection of Donald Trump. And I think we have to do. Um, everything we can to prevent him from returning, returning to the White House. Can you? I've had uh, others do this, and I've done it myself. Yeah, but let's let's take a moment, Margaret, for you to describe in a minute or two what a second Trump presidency in this context, and given all the background and the water under the bridge, what that would look like. I mean, I, I you can just think of it really simply, sort of domestically, in terms of sort of domestically with the economy. You can think about it uh, sort of in terms of foreign policy, and then in terms of just sort of the, I think of the Department of Justice immediately. I mean, that is probably the first place your head goes, Preet. Yep. Um, but I think, you know, this is a man who is being prosecuted by the third branch of government, right? Like the founders conceived of these three equally powerful branches of government that would then check each other. And the political system hasn't been able to hold Donald Trump fully accountable, although they it, he was not reelected. The Congress has not been able to hold him politically accountable. That's really what the founders designed. Um, while he was impeached twice, he was not convicted. So he's still a political force. And the third branch of government is sitting there doing its part to hold him accountable for potentially breaking in very egregious ways the laws of our country. And if that process doesn't play out in full before he is elected, he will go immediately to just destroy that third branch of government that tried to hold him accountable in a way that he has never been held accountable in his life. And so I think one of, you know, I think that the first thing he does is try to unwind this pillar of our democracy, which is the judicial branch, which tried to hold him accountable. And so that's the Department of Justice. That's the courts. That's um, a major unraveling of the system that our founders designed. Um, and then, you know, I think about foreign policy a lot. I think about, you know, what what gifts he gives to the enemies of democracy and the enemies in the United States because he wants to be in the good favor of authoritarian autocrats whose strong men feelings he um he 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 desires um and wants to earn the respect of there's real concerns about what that does for the strength of this country on the international stage and i think just between those those two let alone what it does to 
the rhetoric, what it does to our security, what it does to our our feelings about ourselves and our neighbors. Um, the the just remember how he would speak about women and Hispanics and sort of minority minority groups. I mean, I think about the LGBTQ community um, and these trans kids who, you know, are 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 growing up hearing really, really miserable rhetoric. I mean, that's just what it what it has done in terms of the coarsening of how we talk. And by the way, we won't even talk about ideas. Forget this notion that like there's a party for ideas. I mean, it's really just a it, it just becomes a vengeance play, leading the news every night. Well, you know where ideas get discussed? Two no. places. Two places. <laughs> One is on this podcast. Stay tuned with Preet, but also on your show, Firing Line with Margaret Hoover. And I'll mention your husband for the last time, or maybe the last time, or the second to last time. You can we mention him as much as you want. <laughs> we had a discussion. I tweaked him a little bit. You know, I've done work on CNN. Obviously, he has does work on CNN. And I wondered why segments on on news channels are always so short, which was an indirect prompt for him to talk about your show, which is. Longer form. You have. A, I've been on the show. It's terrific, and you're terrific. Why don't we have more shows like this? And and maybe you could explain why you think we don't have as many, and why the way you do it is. I mean, no disparagement to other people, but why it may be better for democracy and debate and discourse than some of the other ways it's done. Well, I, you've Softball, got a huge smile right down on my the face. Middle. That's so nice. I'm too bad the camera isn't on. You'd see me smiling. Look. Uh, thank you for saying that. It's, it's very generous of you, but it's, um, I think it's a profit motive, right? I mean, there's no reason we couldn't organize it. There are some cable news programs that don't have to race to commercial, right? Everybody has to pay the bills. They have to keep the lights on. Uh, but there are some that really stretch out the segments so that you can get a more robust, nuanced set of views represented in a 15 minute segment. But most segments are six minutes, five minutes. Four minutes. That's all the time you have. And if you have a big guest, they have to get their points in, and then you hardly have time to follow up on any of their points. And then it's off to commercial. The firing line is 30 minutes of uh, no commercials, one long conversation. And we don't have, because we don't have any commercials, we get to have a long, robust, nuanced conversation that explores as many I ideas. I, I don't think I and could take a sip of one, although I, I think I got a very you nice can. mug. It was yeah. really much for, for, as a souvenir from the show. But look, we're on PBS. And PBS is actually, while it is the public broadcasting station, my program is 100% privately funded. It is, you know, I, I haven't taken a dime from PBS. I haven't taken a dime from the federal government or taxpayers. I It is funded by individuals and foundations and um, some corporations. And you see them at the beginning of my show and at the end of my show. And so it's, it's all up there. It's transparent. But that's the only way... I could start this kind of program it is to put it on PBS and to pay for it. How do you select your guests? It's a mix of, you know, the best guests like you are guests who are in the news, have deep knowledge of something and that people know, people know who they are and they want to see, they want to get to know them. I mean, what, sometimes, like in your podcast, people, people listen in to hear somebody, they hear somebody talk, they get a better sense of who they are, how they think, how they talk. You get to see somebody think and talk and and mention it for thirty minutes. You get to sort of see how they're going yeah. to respond. You also can't questions. fake your way through a thirty minute <laughs> thirty minute interview. On some cable channels, somebody can come on and you can filibuster for the four minute segment, but you get a sense if someone is real or not real or expert or not expert. Thirty minutes commercial free. 
I do think there's something also about seeing the person and seeing how they interact. I mean, the people see me every week, so they have a sense of who I am. And then they, they're able to use that as a benchmark for the guest to see how that person is responding to me for different things. And, and that's how people are with your program too. I mean, people listen to you and they hear how people interact with you because you're the, you're the benchmark. So I want to ask you, I know you've talked about this, the intimidation factor in taking on a role as the host of a show not changing the name other than adding your name to it. But as you pointed out earlier, William F. Buckley Jr., who's a towering figure in the conservative movement, uh, originally did Firing Line for a number of decades. And it it reminds me, just if you can indulge me in his story, I was a Senate staffer when I was nominated to be the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. And I get in the elevator one afternoon at the Hart Senate office building. And some guy walks in the elevator and it's him and me. And I don't know him, I don't recognize him, never met him before. And he just, he just sh- yells in the elevator, looking at me, shoes. <laughs> like, pardon me? He says, shoes. I said, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't follow. And he said, you have big shoes to fill. Mary Jo White had that job. Wow. Um, did you have anything like that? So, no, I didn't feel that way. But I, I will preface it by telling you two things. One, I have no aspiration or expectation that I'm going to be William F. Buckley Jr., William F. Ugly Jr. is who he was. He is an extraordinary um, intellect and also convener of people and ideas and really an activist in a way. I mean, he he didn't just put together a magazine and a bunch of intellectuals to, you know, push different ideas, but he also, you know, helped shape really the modern Republican Party from, you know, from 1966 to 1999. I mean, but he really culminating in his influence with the Reagan presidency. Buckley was was many things. And I'm my own person. And by the way, I've been doing this for five years. <laughs> Buckley did it for 33. So, you know, stay tuned, folks. Like, we're we're going to keep this thing going. I think there is so much that's important for us to do um, in terms of our democracy, in terms of political reform, electoral reform, I think re- recentering the Republican Party, which, by the way, you know, might happen or might not. But um, I'm in it for the long haul. And, you know, Buckley, it's interesting. You know, Buckley had all these different formats. Most people think of him in, in the context of his debates, um, but he had eight different formats in the program. I mean, we're we've been going didn't for five smoke? years. We're starting. Yeah, didn't he smoke he on smoked. camera? Of course he smoked. Yeah, don't do that. So, so he smoked all sorts of things too. I mean, there's <laughs> no. I mean, there's a really funny debate mean? about marijuana. There's a funny debate about marijuana. So here's the fun part. I mean, I actually this is I guess where I was getting is that. I also, because I am descendant of Herbert Hoover, I have a a great reverence and I'm involved in Hoover's legacy organizations like the Hoover Institution and the Hoover Presidential Library and the Belgian American Educational Fund. What's that? It's another Hoover, you know, sort of Hoover legacy project I'm involved in. And so I actually, I have a lot of reverence for legacy and for people who have come before us and, and for honoring that legacy and then still carrying traditions forward. And so this program is a new program. It has the same name for several reasons, which really have everything to do with PBS and the need to have widespread carriage of the program, if you call it firing line, the station managers who probably programmed Buckley 30 years ago knew what the program was and they would pick it up and carry it. So it was really a PBS imperative that it be called firing line, um, which I was in a position to do because firing line, the archives and the copyright are actually at the Hoover Institution. Oh, interesting. So can I ask you further about your great grandfather? Yeah. I want to ask this gently. So not everyone in in the world of history is in every way super positive about his presidency. Yeah. Is his legacy, should it be different than what it is? And if yes. so, why? 
Well, for, for a lot of reasons. First of all, I mean, what most people don't know is that Hoover, until Trump, Hoover is the only Republican, the only person elected to the presidency without holding elective office beforehand. That's an extraordinary thing to do I in 1928. In 1928, why do you think that happened? I mean, how did that happen? Like, there is something there that was going on that clearly set him far apart from everybody else in a, in a time. Well, I mean, Hoover came onto the world stage in 1914 at the outbreak of World War I as a private citizen. He was 40 years old, living in London at the capital of mining finance, having made himself into this international mining engineer and found himself in a position to move materials around the world to deliver food relief to the country of Belgium, to basically organize independent food relief, to stave off a famine for the country of Belgium that was invaded by the, by the Germans, occupied by the Germans, who were looking at the Belgians, anticipating they would watch them starve to death because there is no way to get food into Belgium because of the English blockade. Belgium was an industrialized nation, imported 80% of its food. And Hoover, as a Quaker from Iowa, thought you cannot watch an entire population of individuals perish to death in front of our eyes. And he personally, by himself, created an independent Republic of Relief called the Commission for the Relief of Belgium, which organized food relief to feed an entire nation throughout the course of World War I. And he became so popular that Wilson brought him into his wartime cabinet. He became food administrator to the world. He was at Versailles on behalf of Wilson. He predicted that it would lead to another world war. He just became the, the he was the only person, one historian said, that emerged from the, <laughs> the calamity in Versailles with an enhanced reputation. Um, and, and so then he was brought into Coolidge, Harding's cabinet and Coolidge's cabinet and became sort of a who but Hoover candidacy. He was considered sort of the undersecretary, the, the secretary for commerce and the undersecretary for everything else. He was energetic. He was solving problems. He was, he was considered sort of the master of emergencies. And there was, I mean, you remember the saying, a chicken in every pot, a car in every garage, and a chicken in every pot. I mean, people believe that Hoover's name was tied to prosperity because of all the enormous success that he had he had, had in public office and, frankly, just sort of leading the public in these moments of crisis up until his presidency. I think the reason his presidency, I mean, his presidency needs a new look. The Great Depression happens six months into it. Um, no president creates depressions in six months. And... You know, Hoover did a couple of things uh, differently in his presidency than he had in his public life up till then. He believed suddenly that minding his reputation in the press was beneath the office. So he stopped defending himself. And I think that actually, I mean, there's just a communication strategy that changed for Hoover that I think hurt him uh, with the public. Yeah, you, you stick with what's successful. <laughs> <laughs> but no he believed, change. I mean, he yeah. revered the presidency so much. He did believe it was not beneath the presidency. And, and also, look, I, I think there's there is a real critique and re and review that needs to happen of, of those four years. I think historians, some economists, but but not it has not filtered into mainstream sort of historical understanding of what happened in those four years. And what happened was uh, the monetary policy was all over the place, but we didn't understand monetary policy. We thought we, we had a deflationary period that we thought was inflationary. We tightened the money supply thinking there was inflation, but there wasn't. Uh, it caused banks to collapse. I mean, there's there's a, a lot of people have studied this, actually. Even in the last 30 years, our understanding of what happened during the Great Depression has really changed. Um, and, and Hoover ought to get more credit than he gets. But what you also had is a successor to Hoover who really relied on his own political fortune to continue blaming his predecessor. 
And yeah, and well, that it's a good political to narrative. <laughs> well, look, it was enormously effective. And Roosevelt was a better communicator than Hoover in the presidency. Margaret Hoover, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks, Freight. My conversation with Margaret Hoover continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In the bonus for insiders, we continue the discussion about Herbert Hoover's legacy. Basically, Democrats have been running against Hoover. I mean, even Barack Obama in 2008 was the only candidate for the Democratic nomination that didn't run against Hoover. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Before ending the show this week, I want to talk about something we all grapple with, news fatigue. Recently, the Washington Post reported on a new study by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism that shows a global decline in interest in the news. In the U.S., fewer than half of Americans are very interested, and 38% reportedly actively avoid it. Maybe you've experienced this yourself. I know I have, and I'm in the business. And I've spoken to many other people who have too. Every day we are bombarded with bad news, war, climate change, shootings, political turmoil. It is understood that people tend to engage more with bad news, what's known as negativity bias. As Paul Farhi of The Post wrote, quote, consider the old journalism cliche, news is the plane that didn't land, not the many that did, end quote. Farhi quotes Tina Rosenberg, co-founder of a nonprofit called Solutions Journalism Network, who reminds us, quote, to be balanced, you need to tell the whole story. If you're not telling people about how other people went about solving a problem, you're not telling the whole story, end quote. I couldn't agree more. That's why I often end these episodes with a success story. It's not just about what's broken. It's also about what's working. Whether it's a policy to teach about our climate in elementary schools, a weekly community walking club, or booksellers fighting book bans, these stories remind us of the good happening every day. We find inspiration for these episode endings, which we call buttons, in national and local press, and often from you, our listeners. Many of you write to us about stories of good work, and we share them here on Stay Tuned. So seek out what's working. And when you find something positive or inspiring, or you have a story from your own life, send it to us at letters at cafe.com, and we'll help to spread the word. Let's make our news landscape a little more well-rounded together. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Margaret Hoover. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is Noah Ozilai, David Kurlander, Nat Wiener, 
Jake Kaplan, Namita Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.